Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your law podcast. This is your host and textbook voice, Ozzy V. <laughs> and with me as always on this program is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. Once again, we're here together talking about law. It's uh, one of my favorite things in the world to talk about with one of my favorite people to talk about it with, which is you and everyone else that's listening. Indeed. Now, very interesting. So we've been on these, the defamation series. And just last week, there is an article I came across, talked about MSNBC awarded $250,000 in fees owed by One America News. So back in May, Rachel Maddow had used the term saying literally paid Russian propaganda when referring to One America News. So One American News sued her by saying that the word literally said that she, this was a fact, which to them it wasn't. So Rachel Maddow filed an anti-slap lawsuit. And in the court, in the case, they looked at the word literally. And there's actually two ways literally can be taken. The first is the obvious, which is uh, the term could be used to emphasize the truth and accuracy of a statement or description. However, another term could mean virtually and be used in an exaggerated way to emphasize a statement or description that is not literally true. The court adopted the second definition because this statement came in the middle of her commentary, of her opinion, so it wasn't viewed as fact in the eyes of the court. And due to the anti-slap, this is why OAN is now paying MSNBC $250,000 in fees after losing that suit. And that's a great way to start today's episode because it emphasizes why it is we're going to talk about anti-slap in the subject of online defamation. When people are asking me to assist them in a lawsuit that involves someone speaking about them on the internet, what I often try to get them to understand is they have to understand what the risk of bringing that lawsuit is because of the California anti-slap statute. Because you can see an example like this, where Rachel Maddow hired her lawyers who brought one single motion at the start of a case, were able to collect $250,000, which is probably more than the lawsuit would have been worth had One American News had actually prevailed on the case. That often is the case, is that if someone brings an anti-slap motion, they'll be entitled oftentimes to more money if they prevail on that motion than the actual defamation case would be worth had the person who brought the defamation lawsuit had won. So the anti-slap statute makes bringing a lawsuit based on online defamatory statements extremely risky if you don't do it exactly right. And I just need to correct myself real quick. I mentioned in May 2020, the comment was made when actual May 2020 is when the lawsuit was filed. The actual comment happened on the, in episode July 22nd, 2019. To be specific, in case anybody's keeping track of that. However, this week, we will be continuing our series of online defamation this week, specifically delving into anti-slap. This is why I wanted to bring that up. So yeah, when people think about the anti-slap statute, what generally will come to mind 
is the scenario in which the anti-slap statute was intended to remedy, which is when somebody goes out to a protest and then they're sued for engaging in that public participation. However, in the way in which the anti-slap statute is actually applied in court is far more reaching than just protecting the person out on the sidewalk protesting with the protest sign. It encompasses a lot of different conduct. And because the statute says within the text that it is to be broadly construed, the courts have done that. And they've construed it to the point where while it does all the things that it was intended to do, it does a lot of things that in my mind it was not intended to do. And it's in some of those unintended consequences that make the anti-slap statute something that I think in California, especially everyone needs to be aware of, especially when you bring in a defamation lawsuit. So in order to prevail on an anti-slap motion, the defendant, because typically it's the plaintiff bringing the defamation lawsuit, and then the defendant is the person who's going to bring the anti-slap motion, there's two prongs that need to be satisfied in order to prevail on an anti-slap motion. The first prong must be proven by the defendant, and then actually, if that first prong is proven, the burden will shift to the plaintiff to prove the second prong. But let's start with the first one. And in order to establish that first prong, which determines if the plaintiff's lawsuit is a slap suit, the defendant first must show the allegations arise from his or her constitutionally protected speech or petition, the right to which is guaranteed by the Constitution. Second, the plaintiff must show that the speech or petition is in connection with a public issue. So the first part of the first prong is that the statement or the activity at, at issue in the complaint that's being alleged against the defendant must either be constitutionally protected speech, First Amendment activity, or petition, which in everyday vernacular means final lawsuit. So it's either lawsuit activity or it's uh, speech-related activity that's constitutionally protected, and this type of activity has to be in connection with a public issue. And, and in fact, I, I will clarify, the speech has to be regarding an issue of public concern. A lawsuit doesn't. If you are sued for statements made within a lawsuit complaint, just because it's litigation activity, it's protected. So the anti-slap statute establishes four categories of conduct for meeting these requirements. One, any written or oral statement or writing made before a legislative, executive, or judicial proceeding or another official proceeding authorized by law. Two, any written or oral statement or writing made in connection with an issue under consideration or review by a legislative, executive, or judicial body or any other official proceeding authorized by law. Three, any writing or oral statement made in place open to the public or public forum in connection with an issue of public interest. Or four, any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. So it's not just doing the conduct that's protected, but it's also doing anything in furtherance, and then you're sued for that activity. For example, 
my office sues debt collectors who are involved in violations of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Sometimes our lawsuits involve a debt collector obtaining a default judgment against a consumer when they haven't actually served the consumer. There's a bunch of cases that hold that if you try to sue the process server, you're probably going to get hit with an anti-slap motion and lose. Because in order for the debt collector to get the default judgment, a process server has to state under the penalty of perjury that they serve this person, and then they file that document with a court. And courts have held that even these fraudulent statements that are in furtherance of the right to petition are protected by the anti-slap statute. So, for example, if you sue a process server for abuse of process because they filed a false declaration with a court in order to claim that there's personal jurisdiction, the ability to bring someone to court, personal jurisdiction over somebody, and then you sue them for abuse of process, you can meet the elements. But because of the anti-slap statute and the litigation privilege, which bars any type of lawsuit regarding a statement made in furtherance of litigation activity, you will lose an anti-slap motion and the process server will be able to collect attorney fees from you. Other cases in which courts have held that conduct was in furtherance of protected activity is like when a lawyer had sent, in one case, a letter to a bunch of potential customers of someone that they were planning on suing. And then the defendant, the plaintiff in this case, the company, sued the lawyer for defamation saying, well, the letter you sent to these consumers, you made false statements in those. And the lawyer brought an anti-slap motion and the court said that even though there wasn't a lawsuit filed, that letter was sent out to find potential clients for a future lawsuit. That's in furtherance of litigation activity and it's protected. Anytime that a plaintiff files a lawsuit and the defendant sues for abusive process because they feel like they're plaintiff only brought the lawsuit to harass them in bad faith. And even if the lawsuit doesn't have merit, you're almost always going to lose. In fact, you're always going to lose in California in an abusive process lawsuit. Cases have held that recording false liens against somebody's houses for debts that they don't owe is protected by the anti-slap motion because that's related to judicial activity. A bank engaging a a wrongful foreclosure is protected anti-slap conduct. And another example that actually was just in the news here in San Diego a couple of years ago, Canvas for a Cause was a local San Diego organization, and members of the group were going to target stores, and they were standing outside and trying to collect donations and signatures for different causes that they were supporting. And the target store brought a lawsuit against these people for trespass, and they brought an anti-slap motion, and they were successful. And the reason why they were successful was because they relied on a 1979 Supreme Court case. And that court case being Robbins v. Pruneyard Shopping Center, 23 Cal 3rd, 899, decided in 1979, where the California Supreme Court held that high school students could not be prohibited from engaging in free speech activity in the Pruneyard Shopping Center, and in this example, from prohibiting other students' efforts to obtain signatures for a petition to the government. So in that case, what had happened was you had all these high school students who were standing outside the different shopping stores in the Pruneyard Shopping Center, and they were trying to attract awareness to an issue regarding the war. And the Pruneyard Shopping Center brought an injunction to have them removed and prohibit them from entering the Pruneyard Shopping Center unless it was to do actual shopping. And the students said, well, wait a minute, we're engaged in First Amendment protected activity. 
And of course, the Prunier Shopping Center said, that's fine, you can engage in that activity, but not on our private property. The Supreme Court actually found in favor of the students. And what they said was, is that shopping centers and malls have taken over as the place where people meet that's synonymous to the town square and parks where people used to meet back when the First Amendment was first created. So the Supreme Court said, even though these are private property, like the shopping center in the Prunier case, that these private properties have to be treated as public spaces open to the public for the purposes of dialogue related to public issues. Because otherwise, if, for example, these students weren't allowed to go to the shopping center and to make their voice heard, they'd be limited in where they can go. Because, you know, in the 1800s, when the First Amendment was ratified, they would typically, you know, you heard the old saying, like, you know, someone standing on their soapbox. They would bring a soapbox to the town square and then stand on it, scream out to the public about what was bothering them. So the importance of Robbins v. Prumiar, which was affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1980, the importance of this case is that it expanded our, our idea of what a public space is. It's not just a park. It's not just a public sidewalk. It's not just standing in front of a courthouse or a, uh, in the street in front of a commercial, like a com- condominium project being built. It could also include private property if it's a space like a mall or a shopping center in which people typically would gather to do the things they would do in a town square. So let me ask you this. I live in Anaheim. Right by me is downtown Disney. Would downtown Disney be considered an outside shopping center? Do you have to pay admission to get in? No. My analysis is if you were to go down there and engage in First Amendment activity, whether it be protests, whether it be trying to collect signatures for a voter initiative, whether it be about trying to educate people on an issue of public concern, and they were they and they probably would stop you. They oh yeah, hundred percent they would. hundred percent. You would be able to sue them and prevail. Absolutely interesting. Mm, very and interesting. There was some situations that. I came across in Ventura where there were people passing out handbills in a mall in Ventura regarding a, I think it was the, if you remember the proposition to do with the animals being given sufficient space to stand up, sit down, turn around. And they were passing out handbills in the Pacific View Mall in Ventura. And the security guards came and shut them down. And I told them that if you're interested in bringing a lawsuit against the mall, I'd be more than willing to take that case. And they didn't want to do it. but. It's my belief that had they brought that lawsuit, they would have absolutely prevailed because of the Prudyard case, because these are, and it makes sense. You know, it used to be that there was these big shopping centers, uh, these town squares where people would set up their businesses and people would walk through. And if you wanted to be heard, that's where you you would go to be heard. And now that all of these traditionally public spaces have been privatized by prohibiting open discussion and discourse there. You've eliminated the ability for people to make their message heard. So that was in 1980. But, and of course, in 1980, there, there was no internet. But if we fast forward to 2007, we start seeing another phenomena. And, and that's where people are making the argument that websites on the internet are a public forum. And this specifically speaking to the online international movie database, which was protected by the anti-slap statute in 2007, when the court held that internet websites are a public forum where they, quote, are accessible to anyone 
who chooses to visit the site. And this was from Kronmeyer v. Internet Movie Database, 2007-150, Cal App, 4th, 941. So that's one of many cases that were coming down at this period in time, about 2007, where there was these arguments that a website that anyone could access should be considered the same as the Premier Shopping Center. Because now, in 2007, the internet is taking the place of these traditional public spaces in which people would go to to make their voice heard. And so the International Movie Database case and, and many other cases actually followed suit. And we're going to look at a few of those. This moves on to Wong V. Jing, 189 Cal App 4th, 1354, a 2010 case where the court held websites are clearly a public forum, citing to six previous cases that held so, but also held consumer information that goes beyond a particular interaction between the parties and implicates matters of public concern that can affect many people is generally deemed to involve an issue of public interest for purposes of the anti-slap statute. The court held that, quote, the posting went beyond parochial issues concerning a private dispute about particular dental appointments. It implicitly dealt with the more general issues of the use of nitrous oxide and silver amalgam, implied that those substances should not be used in treating children, and informed readers that other dentists do not use them. Thus, the review was not just a highly critical opinion of Wong's performance on particular occasions, it was also part of a public discussion and dissemination of information on issues of public interest. So Jing was a, a mother who brought her daughter, obviously, to uh, dentist Dr. Wong and had a very terrible experience there and then decided after the experience to go on to the Yelp website. The website, if you don't know, Yelp, it's a place where uh, consumers can go and review businesses in their community. And on the website, Jing said that she had a very terrible experience at the dentist and talked about how their attitudes weren't very good and she didn't like the cleanliness of the, of the office. But also as part of the post, stated that the dentist shouldn't be using nitrous oxide or silver amalgam. Did I get that right, Ozzy? Amalgam. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a dental word, not a legal word. So uh, anyway, so the dentist brought a lawsuit against Ms. Jing and said that by Ms. Jing going on to Yelp and posting statements about how he ran his practice, damaged his reputation and that the statements were false. And because of the fact that people would read these things on Yelp, they would not do business with him. And of course, as we've heard before, statements that are written are libel, not slander, and therefore damages are presumed. And so he brought this lawsuit and Ms. Jing brought the anti-slap motion. And the way that Dr. Wong defended against the anti-slap motion was by saying that the fact that Ms. Jing is upset about how her particular experience went at uh, Dr. Wong's office doesn't make it a matter of public concern. The court disagreed. And they said, while some of the things that Ms. Jing talked about may have been matters confined solely to a private dispute, other statements made in the post are a matter of public concern. And therefore, granted the anti-slap motion, which meant that the lawsuit would be dismissed and Dr. Wong would have to pay Ms. Jing's attorney's fees. And that brings me to the point 
that is oftentimes missed in these anti-slap analysis is the issue of mixed claims. Because there's a, there was some lack of understanding maybe 10 years ago about this, but the California Supreme Court has made clear that if you sue somebody for a statement made on the internet or a statement made anywhere that's a place of public gatherings and a matter of public interest, and that statement contains both protected and unprotected speech, the defendant can still bring and win an anti-slap motion. So you can't just carve out the little piece of information that is not protected and bring the lawsuit. You would actually be responsible even if the lawsuit brought what they call a mixed claim, a statement that was both protected in part and not protected in part. This is a good example of that because the court said, well, there's some of this statements concerning the private dispute, but other portions of it considered a matter of public interest. And therefore, because it was on a public forum, Yelp's website, a website that anybody could access, the statement was protected by the anti-slap motion. So the Cromire and the Gene case both talk about websites that are accessible to everybody. Yelp is a webpage where if you go to yelp.com, anyone can access it. And the same thing is true with the International Movie Database. So cases that came along later had to decide how this applied to websites like Facebook and Instagram. These are the type of websites that not anyone with a internet access can immediately just access the post. Some of these, you have to have a membership to the, to the page. And oftentimes, you actually have to be accepted as a follower or a friend of the person who's making the post. And so this issue was dealt with in 2014. And speaking specifically, it was on May 1st, 2014, when Floyd Mayweather Jr. posted on his Facebook and Instagram accounts that, quote, the real reason me and Chantel Christine Jackson at Miss Jackson broke up was because she got an abortion, and I'm totally against killing babies. She killed our twin babies and added a bunch of hashtags. Mayweather then made similar comments on a radio broadcast, including allegations of plastic surgery. Jackson sued Mayweather, claiming that the statements were false, with medical evidence to support Jackson's claim that Mayweather's statements were indeed false. The court held, quote, Mayweather's postings on his Facebook and Instagram account and his comments about Jackson during a radio broadcast were all made, quote, in a place open to the public or a public forum within the meaning of the anti-slap statute. The court further held that, quote, simply because a general topic is an issue of public interest, not every statement somewhat related to that subject is also a matter of public interest, but that, quote, Mayweather's posting of a copy of the sonogram of the twin fetuses or his personal statement of opposition to, quote, killing babies contributed to the public debate on women's reproductive rights. So we have the situation now where Mayweather, who's a, who's a celebrity, is on his Facebook page and his Instagram page talking about his ex. And in one instance, he's talking about her in a way that could be defamatory because he's taking shots at her and saying that she did a terrible thing. But then in another sense, uses that remark to talk about an issue of public interest, which is abortion. So the court said that simply because a message that someone posts talks about generally something that could be a public interest, that 
may not be enough to bring the statement in under anti-slap, but because of the fact that he was giving his personal statements about, in this instance, killing babies, but essentially abortion, that he was talking about an issue of public concern. However, the court went even further, and it said that even if the remark that Mayweather made wasn't a matter of public concern, just because the two people at issue here are celebrities, that in and of itself makes this an, a matter of public concern. And the court went on to say that, quote, Mayweather's postings and comments concerning his relationship with Jackson, as well as Jackson's pregnancy, its termination, and her cosmetic surgery were, quote, celebrity gossip properly considered under established case law as statements in connection with an issue of public interest. Quote, in general, a public issue is implicated if the subject of the statement or activity underlying the claim was a person or entity in the public eye. So the court went further than just saying that this is a matter of public interest because it deals with the public debate on reproductive rights and women's rights. But simply because Mayweather is a person who is famous, people are interested in him, and it's about the breakup and it's something that's, that's actually in the headlines, that the celebrity gossip, actually, that in and of itself makes this an issue of public interest. So something that is of public interest or public concern doesn't have to be something like politics, the environment. It could just be something that everybody's talking about. And so that's an expansion of what it is that creates a matter of public interest. But what we also have to take into consideration, this becomes really important when we're talking about the online defamation that we're working towards, is the fact that the law also recognizes what they call a vortex public figure or limited public figure. And this allows a person who's never been famous, who's never been on television, who's never been a person of interest to the public, to become a public figure for a very limited purpose. And if you become a limited purpose public figure, and then you're the target of a defamatory statement, it could actually make an anti-slap motion almost impossible to defeat. So we got to look at what the Supreme Court called a limited public figure. First, in the case Gertz v. Robert Welsh Incorporated, the Supreme Court defined limited purpose public figures as persons who, quote, have thrust themselves to the forefront of particular public controversies in order to influence the resolution of the issues involved. A defamation plaintiff, who is a limited-purpose public figure, must prove actual malice, but only with respect to statements that pertain to the public controversy within which he or she is a public figure. Also in Ampex Corporation v. Cargill, a case that also held that a Yahoo message board is a public space, compared a limited public figure to an all-purpose public figure, stating, the characterization of, quote, public figure falls into two categories, the all-purpose public figure and the limited-purpose or, quote, vortex public figure. The all-purpose public figure is one who has achieved such a pervasive fame or notoriety that he or she becomes a public figure for all purposes and contexts. The limited purpose public figure is an individual 
who voluntarily injects him or herself or is drawn into a specific public controversy, thereby becoming a public figure on a limited range of issues. So when we talk about the limited purpose public figures, there's like two basic categories of what can become a limited purpose public figure. One is a person who's limited as a public figure to a a particular world. So for example, a baseball player probably would be a general and all-purpose public figure, but one could also argue that a person who's a baseball player, but not a public figure because they're not quite well-known enough, is still a vortex public figure in the world of baseball. So if you're an avid baseball fan, you may know who this person is, and all other avid baseball fans might know who this person is. But if you were to go out on the streets and ask if anyone knows who this person was, outside of those limited people, this person wouldn't be a public figure. So there's that type of a limited purpose public figure, a person who voluntarily injects themselves into the spotlight by being involved in a particular activity. And then you have a person who injects himself into a controversy. So for example, if someone goes on Facebook and puts out a bold statement about Catholic church uh, covering up child molestation, and then they're brought into that conversation because of them injecting themselves into the conversation, for the purposes of statements made on that topic, they could be considered a limited purpose public figure. So as we move towards online defamation, I I think you could already see how when somebody's making remarks on Facebook and they're getting attacked for it, how they might be considered a a vortex or limited purpose public figure. So why does that matter? Why does it matter if a person is a vortex or limited purpose public figure? Well, it kind of goes back to what we said two weeks ago when we were talking about actual malice. We talked about how when a newspaper prints a statement and they're sued for defamation, the person who sues the newspaper has to be able to prove malice, which is an additional element that's not generally required for a defamation case. But in the other context is when a person talks about a public figure and the public figure sues, the public figure has to show that the speaker was using actual malice in making the defamatory statement. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that covers a huge chunk of the anti-slap portion of our online defamation series. Next week, we will continue with the series, and we're going to piece everything that we've discussed over the past three episodes. So if you haven't had an opportunity to do so, check those episodes out before next week so you can have a better understanding of the beast that is online defamation. And of course, it is a beast. (laughs) It's a beast. It definitely feels like, uh, listen, I'm going to be honest. I play video games. There are these massive boss fights where you got to strategize how to take these guys down. That's exactly what online defamation feels like when we're discussing it. Like, man, there's a lot of stuff behind this. And definitely there is. Now, any contact information for the law office of Andre Verdun, you could visit facebook.com forward slash Verdun Law or email to office at verdunlaw.com. And while you're on Facebook, you could actually check out our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash your law podcast. Once again, facebook.com slash your law podcast. Also, if you'd like to send in any questions to the show, we're going to be tackling some things once we're done with the online defamation series. You can send your emails and questions to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, that's yourlawpod at gmail.com. 
Once again, this is Ozzy V, the host, and California Attorney at Law, Andre Verdun. Anything you'd like to say before we head out for the week, Andre? Wear a mask, stay safe. That's your go-to, and I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, of course, stay, wear a mask. I almost said stay a mask, wear safe. <laughs> and of course, ladies and gentlemen, wear a mask, stay safe. What are you drinking over there, Ozzy? I'm not sure. I thought it was water. <laughs> we'll see you next week right here on your law podcast. Thank you.